Welcome, I'm Sirius Afshar, and this is the Wigo's Informal Economy Podcast, Social Protection. In this monthly podcast, we will discuss some of the most pressing issues related to the linkages between the informal economy and social protection, including debates around workers' health provision, pension schemes for older workers, as well as childcare systems and other social protection policies for informal workers in order to improve their livelihoods. And in this month, I was in South Africa, where I could talk about the ILO's Recommendation 204 to our guest of this episode, Jane Barrett. I also talked to Lulama Mali, a street vendor leader from Johannesburg, who is also involved in the local level with the implementation of the R204, so we could include some parts of this conversation in the episode as well. I hope you enjoy it. In 2015, the ILO International Labor Conference adopted the recommendation about the transition from the informal economy to the formal economy, the R204 for short. To help us understand about the R204 and what's the importance of it, what was done until now and the challenges ahead, we will talk to Jane Barrett. Jane is Wigo's Organization and Representation Program Director and I'm here in South Africa today to interview her for this month's episode. Jane, welcome to the Informal Economy Podcast, Social Protection. Thank you. Okay, Jane. So, R204, in very general lines, what is it about? Okay, so Recommendation 204 was adopted in 2015 by the International Labor Conference, which is the annual conference of the ILO. And it's a conference where the three social partners, labor, organized labor, organized business and governments, get together to adopt guidelines, which are called instruments, which then become the guidelines for national states to regulate and protect employment and work conditions in general. Historically, the ILO and the International Conference itself, the ILC, has primarily dealt with the conditions of workers who have an employer. And in 2015, there was a, a new development in the sense that finally there was recognition that there are millions of workers who lie outside of the employment relationship, many of whom are self-employed, others of whom have other kinds of, of disguised forms of employment, and that these workers needed protection. And that was the motivation originally for R204, from the workers' perspective. From employers' perspective, the business perspective, they brought the issue to the table because they were looking for more regulation of the informal sector um, because they had an argument that it undermined the formal sector. And so these two somewhat divergent interests came together to discuss pathways for formalizing the situation for both workers and businesses. Excellent. Okay, so has WIGO played any part in the process of the construction of the recommendation? So the original proposal for the agenda item was brought by business. And so the early conception of the problem was very much a business competition type argument. When WIGO became aware of this proposal for a discussion on formalization, it was quite alarmed at the um, orientation of those who were proposing the 
instrument. And so Uyghur got very involved in the run-up to the 2015 International Labour Conference where the instrument was finally adopted. Uyghur got very involved to try and ensure that the interests of informal workers were properly served in the instrument. So it got involved in the prior discussions, it got involved in the formal trade union movement internationally and at the national level in many countries. It held its own discussions internally with, with membership-based organizations. And then finally, in 2015 and in the run-up ILC in 2014, sent a delegation to have a presence in the ILC to influence those who were formal representatives of the three constituencies. So what do you think were the main accomplishments of the R204? Well, Recommendation 204 is quite a complex document. It's got nine chapters. It's quite a long document. And its status is a recommendation. It's not a convention. So what happens, the difference between the two is with a convention, national states are asked to ratify the convention. And then that once they've ratified, there's an obligation to put into law various legal changes that bring the country in line with the convention. With a recommendation, it's more at a kind of policy level and it's it's more about the country not so much formally adopting or ratifying the, the recommendation, but actually immediately following up to find ways of implementing. So, so some people argue that a recommendation is a weaker instrument than a convention, but it's not necessarily so in the sense that getting a country to follow a convention is sometimes a much slower process because you've got to persuade the country to ratify the convention and then you go into the process of persuading the country to how to change the law and so on. Whereas with a recommendation, as soon as it's passed by the International Labour Conference, you can start pursuing governments, especially those that participated actively in the process. You can start pursuing them to say, okay, now how are you going to implement it? Because basically all the countries in voting for it have immediately accepted some responsibility. What it does mean is you don't have any international sort of legal sanction if they don't pursue it. But there is a strong moral imperative once a country has voted for it in the ILC. So a number of things have happened since 2015. The ILO itself has a monitoring process of implementation, which isn't terribly well coordinated, but nevertheless there is something happening at the level of the International Labour Organization around monitoring, and there are some of their country offices that are providing direct support to the social partners to pursue implementation. And then um, at a country level, there are a lot of informal worker organizations who have started to push from below. And that's really where WeGo comes in, because we've been providing support to some membership-based organizations to do that pushing from below. And we've also been doing quite a lot of education work since 2015 to familiarize 
membership-based organizations with the content of R204 and to explore with them ways in which they can use the instrument to argue for changes in the policy and practice environment for informal workers. So uh, what are the next steps then? So the implementation is because the world of informality is quite complex Um, you know, there are self-employed workers, own account workers, in other words, who are survivalists, who are really the biggest constituency of WIGO and its membership-based organizations. Those being waste pickers, street vendors, home-based workers, and so on, who are reliant on policies and practices largely of cities, but also at a national level. They rely on it dependent on those institutions to for infrastructure access, for you know access to water, electricity. Um, in the case of street vendors, for access to places to trade. In the case of waste pickers, for access to waste that is generally controlled by municipalities. So they're living and working in environments where there's strong controls over their work environment, but where there isn't an employment relationship as such. And so really the trick is to try and use the principles of R204, which talks about changing the policy and legislative environment. It's to use those principles in practice to push municipalities and other government institutions to provide the necessary environment in which informal workers, particularly own account workers, can work. But then there's a whole other category of informality, which is informal workers who are informal only because they're in an employment relationship, but the employer is non-compliant with basic conditions of employment that are usually regulated at a national level. So, you know, that's also, that's a different area of, of pressure and reform. And for domestic workers who are also part of the Uyghur constituency, that's often where the work has to happen because it's around, um, you know, domestic workers have an employment relationship, but a lot of employers don't comply with the minimum wages or with registration for unemployment insurance or whatever the local national legislative regime is in place for domestic workers. So there's a different strategy required for workers who are employed but are, who are nevertheless informal because of the uh, non-compliance of the employer. So there's two tracks really of work for go. The one is empowering those who are employed like domestic workers to find the, to identify what needs to change in employment practice as well as in law to make sure that the employer is compliant and therefore that the worker, that would be the path to transitioning from informality to formality. Whereas for the own account worker, the survivalist street vendor or waste picker, the path is, is more about changing the environment and that would include the social protection environment as well as the infrastructural environment. found out that Alto 4 would be a good vehicle for us to improve our lives because it's talking about what my organization had already started. It matched exactly with our idea and we were so happy about it. 
because it talks about transformation and it's what we had already started. The lessons that we learned is that together we can make it. As the traders, everybody was willing. And it was really possible that it will happen. You know, the Alto 4, the workshop for Alto 4 made us to think broadly that if you can get a building, because you can't work from the street with Alto 4, in that building we can have our own space of meetings have our own hall, have our own boardrooms, get skills training, business management, know how to administer offices, then everything will be right for us. So you, you've mentioned several things that I want to ask you next. Um, so which are the challenges in this attempt to formalize the informal and what is uh, Wigo's view on this matter? So there are a lot of challenges. Um, the one is that the recommendation 204 was negotiated with national governments represented at the ILO and often you find there's a bit of a disjuncture between national governments and local authorities and particularly when it comes to own account workers it's the local authorities that really are the most important implementing agencies and so the first challenge is to make sure that there's an understanding at local government level and so that means pushing from below as well as getting the national government usually the department of labor or whatever department is responsible for this area of work to make the connection with with the local municipalities to make sure that they understand what our 204 is all about. So that's one of the challenges. The other challenge is particularly for employed workers who are informal, like domestic workers, where there's non often non-compliance. Very often the inspectorates of labour are very overstretched, particularly in developing countries um, where non-compliance is often very high. And so there needs to be a lot of push from below, but it needs the support of the state institutions that are responsible for compliance. So that's also a challenge. A further challenge is that the workers themselves are not always organised, and that's where particularly the organising and representation programme of WeGo comes in. Sometimes they might have nascent organisations that have a single focus, maybe just on, if it's a street vendor organisation, sometimes they may in the past only have been coming together around issues of permitting or licensing, and they might never have really thought about how their organisation could take up a range of other issues like access to water, like social protection, like childcare, or whatever. So that's that's another challenge, and that's really where the organising and representation programme comes in. So what's the link between R204 and the expansion of social protection? So R204 makes a commitment in one of its chapters, uh, the chapter that deals with policy and legal changes. Um, it makes a commitment that the social partners agree that um, social protection platforms, as well as social protection policies and legal frameworks, should be reviewed to make sure that all informal workers are included. 
um, and that social protection itself, I mean, this is not the way it's framed in, in R204, but effectively that social protection itself can become a pathway to formalization. So, for example, domestic workers in many countries are supposed by law to be included in unemployment insurance. The employer is often, and it varies from country to country, but many countries on paper include domestic workers in coverage of unemployment insurance as well as accidents at work and so on. But you find the employer doesn't make the necessary contribution and so they're excluded through non-compliance. So in South Africa, for example, we have a thing called COIDA, which is an act that deals with accidents and injury at work. And the law in South Africa excluded domestic workers, which is contrary both to Recommendation 204 as well as contrary to Convention 189 covering domestic workers. So the domestic workers in South Africa went on an organizing campaign to pressurize government to extend the injury compensation insurance to domestic workers. And that was based, their campaign was very much based on experience and one particular case in particular where a domestic worker in charge of looking after her employer's two children One of the children fell in the swimming pool. The um, domestic worker jumped in the pool to try and save the child, and in the process, the domestic worker drowned. And she was so she was on duty at work, doing her job, acted in line with her job. She lost her life, and there was absolutely no insurance for her because of this exclusion of domestic workers from insurance against accidents and injury at work. So the domestic workers ran a campaign and government has now finally agreed to extend that protection to domestic workers. So that that's a fairly simple path of organizing and the extension by its very nature then becomes part of the formalizing process because it requires registering the worker under that in terms of the act and so on. Where it becomes more difficult is for own-account workers because they don't have an employer. And in most countries in the world, historically, insurances for unemployment and accidents at work and so on have tended to be linked to the employment relationship. And so the trick now under R204 is to find other formulations for social protection that are not limited to the employment relationship. And our experience has found that many own-account workers are very willing to make a a small contribution, but obviously their, their incomes are so low that it's unlikely that a small contribution will go far enough to give them sufficient compensation in the event of unemployment or in the event of an accident at work and so on or access to health. Um, so this is a lot of the work that our social protection program is doing, is to really try and look deeply into what would be the most appropriate forms of social protection to include own-account workers 
in a way that doesn't burden them with too much of the, the, the responsibility for payment for such inclusion. So, you know, there's still a lot of um, discussion around what are the most effective tools for inclusion, but certainly we found in the workshops that we've run in South Africa that social protection and different forms of social protection come up quite high on the agenda of own account workers. Do you think social protection can be a, an organizing tool for informal workers? If so, how would that work? I would definitely see social protection as an organizing tool. Our experience is that, you know, when we ask organizations, the leaders of, of informal worker organizations, that social protection issues are always put on the list of, of challenges and issues that they would like to, to have addressed and to make improvements in, in that sphere. In particular, maternity cover, because own account workers, if they women, if they become pregnant, they basically find they have they cannot leave the job either before they have the baby or after they have the baby. So they're then forced into a situation where they're working right through their pregnancy and immediately thereafter. And that links to childcare issues because the worker doesn't have enough of an income to pay somebody else to look after the child. So she brings the child to work as a baby and often it's onto a dump site or onto a, a busy vending market. So there are all sorts of safety and health considerations for the child. So all of these issues are kind of interrelated. And as I say, they, they, when we've held workshops about what are the issues that particularly own account workers want interventions on, the two issues that always come up first are infrastructure support, places to trade or places to work, access to materials in the case of waste pickers, places to store goods. That's the one sort of stream of issues, and then the other stream of issues is social protections. So the two can become organizing issues in the sense that they are then issues that the workers focus on in formulating their demands to the local authority or to the national government for policy and implementation change. for added broaden our minds that this could happen there would be social protection and social protection for us look at my age I'm over 60 now I should have retired the problem is children are not working they finish school they're staying at home no jobs so I had to put bread on table social protection would assist in retirement we agreed, we called a meeting and informed the traders that there's this ATOFO which could help you when you retire. But before it helped you, you have to help yourself. Have some money saved while you are still working. The how ways will depend on discussions with the government and you traders. How do we do it? But we had an understanding and a belief that if we can, save a certain amount and then ask the government be paid to labor and kept it like any registered company after we registered our own companies 
and then benefit from that when the retirement time comes. And at the same time, we get ill for a long time sometimes. It will also assist in sick leaves. We die in the street. We also, it will also assist during the time of death. So it is very important that we use a tool for. that it becomes an organizing tool is once workers have identified we want child support, we want um, maternity protections and benefits for women workers, we want um, compensation in the event of or, or insurance payouts in the event of, of accidents at work, we want access to health care etc. Once they've identified any one or more of those issues then it's a question of identifying, okay, this is what we want. How do we want to get there? Who do we need to take our demand to? And how do we make sure that our demand is heard and that we engage whoever it is that we're taking our demand to? So in order to do that, we need to show that we've got numbers, that we represent somebody or some people. There's no point in a leader on his or her own just going with their jacket and saying, well, I believe uh, street vendors want X, Y, and Z. You have to go demonstrating that you have a mandate of an organized base. So the first thing is to organize the base to be able to demonstrate that you represent an organization and to have a little bit of a noise behind you, whether it's through a protest action, whether it's through a petition, whether it's just through images of general meetings, um, it's really necessary to convince the other side that you're not just there with your jacket. And in order to do that, it requires a lot of prior you know, consolidation of the organization. And then clarity in putting forward the demand, or the demands, plural, that you have a reasoned argument that you know what it is, what outcome you want from the engagement, and that requires a little bit of thinking. It needs discussion with the membership, and to discuss with the membership, you need structures. You need because you don't just want to make a complaint; you want to actually make a proposal, which might have, you know, through engagement with your counterpart will actually bring a, a material change to the conditions. And all of that is organizing work because it requires a structure to the organization, it requires leadership, it requires the leadership to know how to get a mandate, know how to report back, know how to um, engage the members if the powers that be are not conceding to the demand, should we shift our proposal, or do we step up the pressure of protest in order to gain what we what we originally put on the table? It requires a lot of organizational strategizing to finally reach agreement. And all of that is, in effect, organizing work. Perfect. Jane Barrett, thank you very much. Thank you. And 
If you want to learn more about the R204, please visit Wigo's website where you may find briefs, blog posts and news about the latest activities related to the R204 process. As usual, we will leave some links on the description of the episode with some of these Wigo material and more. And don't forget to subscribe to our monthly podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please follow us on Twitter and Facebook for the latest updates on our research on informal economy and social protection. I am Cyrus Afshar, and this was the Wigo's Informal Economy Podcast, Social Protection. See you next month.